Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Zach Sundin, executive producer of the Darwinian Diva podcast. In today's episode, we will be interviewing Todd Shackelford, the distinguished professor of psychology at Oakland University, who happens to be my boss and Viviana's husband. And in today's episode, we're going to be breaking down what evolutionary psychology is at its foundation. If you have any questions for us after the episode or anything from our first episode, please contact us at Darwinian Diva on Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook by searching Darwinian Diva. Enjoy the episode, think critically, and here's the Diva. Okay, so... Thank you, Todd, for joining us. This is Todd Shackelford, and he is the chair of the Department of Psychology at Oakland University. And today he's going to be telling us and you about uh, evolutionary psychology. So So welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay. So I guess first question is, what is evolutionary psychology? What what is that? So evolutionary psychology is, it's really the application of Darwin, Darwinian principles, principles of natural selection and sexual selection to trying to understand the way the mind works. So rather than assume anything about the way the mind is built or the way it operates, we use sort of an evolutionary, a Darwinian perspective to try to get a handle on how the mind is built and what sort of things it's designed to do that is designed by natural selection or sexual selection. Okay. So for someone who has not heard of evolutionary psychology or applying natural selection and sexual selection to thinking about psychology. How is it different than, I'm just going to say, traditional psychology, psychological perspectives? Sure. So an evolutionary psychological perspective essentially makes explicit that we are the current endpoints of a long evolutionary process. We are the current descendants of a long and unbroken chain of ancestors that did successfully survive and reproduce. And the idea is that that might help you know something or hypothesize something about the way the mind works today. So that we are here today because our ancestors were successful at surviving and reproducing more so than were those earlier humans who were not our ancestors. Okay, so you touched on, you used the word explicit. So evolutionary psychologists make it explicit in their application in thinking about hypotheses or um, just the practice of evolutionary psychology. So someone who is a social psychologist or what people think about when they think psychology um, or a developmental psychologist, are you saying that they are also in away evolutionary psychologists, but they're just not applying that same sort of uh, thinking to, you know, devise or create their hypotheses. Yeah, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So what I'm saying is all psychologists are evolutionary psychologists in the sense that there is no alternative explanation for the complex design of the mind, the apparent design of the mind. Um, what evolutionary psychologists do is simply recognize that and take advantage of the knowledge of, or take advantage of, you know, the appreciation of an evolutionary history and the likely adaptive problems that humans were likely uh, to have faced recurrently. Um, 
And so what it does, taking an evolutionary perspective, essentially requires one to be explicit or to be specific about what adaptive problems humans might have recurrently faced that led to the current way that the mind works. So yes, I mean, given that there's no scientific alternative to evolution by natural selection as, you know, as an explanation for the design of the mind, um, there's simply nothing for it, but that everyone must be an evolutionary psychologist unless, you know, you're a creationist psychologist. Uh, good luck getting a job. Okay. Well, that's, we'll save that topic for another day. <laughs> okay. So one of the things, and I, maybe I'm wrong, but, um, one of the things that um, I think people think of when we say evolution, right, uh, you know, is, oh, well, especially as it relates to psychology, oh, well, that means that, are you saying that we can't change and this excuses, you know, excuses behavior that, you know, might be illegal or hurtful towards others? Or, um, so how do you sort of, um, you know, um, well, how can you frame it in a way that, um, will help people think about evolutionary psychology, or at least, you know, consider thinking about an evolutionary perspective on really life, um, <clears throat> without invoking those sorts of feelings of, you know, that, oh, it's biologically determined, or, um, or, you know, men are sexually coercive or aggressive, because, you know, they're born that way. And, and that's just the way it is. Sure, well, it is a common sort of misunderstanding, and I think it is a misunderstanding. I think the mind is designed as it is by evolution by natural selection. But that doesn't, what that means in short is that the structure of the mind, the actual mechanisms of the mind are built um, as a consequence of evolution by natural selection, but they're also designed to be sensitive to input. They're designed to be sensitive to, you know, the local social and cultural rules and norms and, um, for example, in modern, in modern times, they're, like, they're built to be sensitive to laws and likely costs of behaving in a particular way. So, you know, arguing that something has an evolutionary explanation um, doesn't in any way, um, any more than any other kind of explanation, mean that, therefore, there's nothing that one can do about it. I mean, we know that one means by which to decrease the frequency of rape, for example, is to increase the costs that are inflicted on detected rapists. Um, men's minds are built, yes, to motivate the pursuit of sexual variety, even perhaps sexual coercion under cer certain circumstances, but their minds are also designed to be sensitive to the potential costs of taking that action. One of the sort of my hang-ups with, uh, you know, the not excuse, but, you know, um, you know, that issue that, okay, well, you're saying, you know, you're excusing bad behavior and so forth. If you're taking an evolutionary perspective, it's a perspective, you know, and a guide for hypotheses that would cut across of all of human behavior, right? So sure. one of my qualms, again, with, you know, the issue of it's biologically determined, or we can't change things. But it also applies to good things. And, you know, and so people don't talk about well, that's, you know, if you're talking about evolutionary psychology or evolutionary principles, you know, it's, you're excusing bad behavior, but it's also providing, you know, guidance for hypotheses surrounding positive psychology or the things that you do that are good, which, you know, is a big part of our day, you know, doing like good things or like regular things without 
doing things that are illegal and so forth. Yeah. So, um, so there's no doubt that, I mean, an evolutionary explanation is an explanation, not a right. justification. Right. Um, nor is it, you know, sort of, um, I mean, I was just thinking that as you were saying that, that a lot of people will push back on an evolutionary explanation for good behavior as well. Because, you know, if you're saying, oh, parental love is, you know, the product of evolved machinery of the mind, that somehow takes away from the goodness of it. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the fact is there is an explanation. It's not magic. And it's, you know, the only known cause of complex design is evolution by natural selection. I mean, you can still feel parental love and yet appreciate that, you know, it's produced by mechanisms of the mind that happen to be built in gray matter, but could have been built by tiddlywinks. Right. Yeah. And I think our psychology though, I mean, we're not attuned to those mechanics anyway. So we're not thinking about, well, I am a robot and I am going, you know, my, right. this is, I am a, I am a packet of genes. You know, we don't think that way. Right. Um, it's only when we are hit with these sorts of, you know, topics to think about, or maybe when we're applying them to scientific endeavors that we go to that place. Okay. So I think another issue that um, people get hung up on when we bring in evolution um, is, well, how do humans fit into this? Well, are you saying that we come from monkeys? <laughs> um, <clears throat> and I think that that is, um, again, another area that maybe you can clarify for, uh, for, for listeners or viewers to, um, you know, so that's not a default sort of way to think about applying evolutionary principles to really understanding human life. Um, yes. I mean, well, the way that humans fit in is we are one of, you know, we are simply one species among millions that have been produced over evolutionary history. Um, there's nothing in some sense, therefore there's nothing magical or special or different or unique or especially interesting about humans. I mean, we of course think humans are interesting because we are humans. Um, but no, I mean, there's, uh, you can use evolutionary, anything that has a brain, you know, has, you know, a psychology and therefore an evolutionary psychological perspective can be applied just as readily and just as appropriately to a roach as it can to a human. There's nothing uh, mystical or, you know, particularly noteworthy about humans per se. I mean, at the same time, of course, humans are a distinct species, and we do have species-typical evolved machinery. Uh, but so do roaches, and so do dogs, and so do cats, and every other um, form of life. So for people who are, you know, who are sort of taken aback by the application of evolutionary principles to humans in particular, I mean, my general response is, get over it. Right. Well, I, I mean, yes. <laughs> uh, also, I, I think it doesn't matter whether, you know, you don't have to believe that or it's not relevant to some extent because the facts are the facts, right? So um, it's a way of thinking and practicing, um, you know, science. And, um, you know, I like how you said that, you know, we're just part of a larger, you know, set of species. All right, so how about um, using evolutionary psychology in the social sciences generally? So you are an evolutionary psychologist, as am I, uh, but 
one of the utilities um, of evolutionary psychology is that it can be applied to any discipline, really, right? Um, yeah. So what are your thoughts on on uh, you know applying evolutionary psychological guidelines on uh, social sciences in general? Uh, my thoughts are that, you know, you are, you know, wandering around in the dark if you don't have, if you don't ex take an explicitly evolutionary perspective on whatever it is you're interested in, whether it's political science or philosophy or, you know, communications or sociology. Yeah, you may occasionally stumble upon something interesting, but it'll be by accident. Um, I think if you take an explicitly evolutionary perspective, I think you as a consequence take advantage of, you know, a beautifully well-supported theory of the design of the mind. And I mean, to, so to, to the extent that you're studying, you know, consequences of the human mind, which all the fields I just mentioned are consequences of the human mind. If you want to understand sociology, you know, in broad social patterns, for example, these aren't mystically dropped on us, you know, from above. I mean, they are produced by individual human minds. And therefore, I see no alternative but to at some point consider that the mind is built by evolution by natural selection. And I mean, I, I you know, again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you can't do interesting sociology or communications without an evolutionary perspective. You can, but it'll be by accident. By accident or, um, just grasping at variables that might or might not be related to whatever it is that you're looking at. Um, one of the um, things that you just made me think of is, um, you know, using an evolutionary perspective to guide, you know, the hypotheses and therefore the, the um, you know, the variables that you're interested in. So if you're interested in, you know, why do people, um, you know, uh, you know, why are they fearful of, people that look different from them. Well, one way to think about that is, well, I was raised to, you know, be wary of, of people that look different. Sure. But using an evolutionary perspective might guide you to look at that a little more deeply and with a little more guidance, right? Absolutely. Um, yes. And I think there actually has been some really interesting work in, well, for example, sociology, I mean, there are now sociologists that refer to themselves as evolutionary sociologists. Okay. Um, there's a new book by uh, Steve Sanderson, uh, in particular, who was trained as a traditional sociologist, but now sort of applies evolutionary thinking to sociological sorts of, of ideas and concepts. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way of putting it, is that what it does is it helps, it helps to guide, you know, where the likely, you know, largest effects are going to be found or where, you know, um, it helps to guide your pursuit of whatever it is you're interested in. So why do you think this perspective is important and why should, you know, these schools of, uh, you know, we'll just stick with psychology or social, you know, social sciences. Uh, why do you think it's important, uh, that they should apply evolutionary thinking to their practice? And that's kind of hard because psychology has been around a very long time and, um, you know, people don't want to start all over 
<laughs> you know, right. re- re- reinvent a wheel, you know, that may or may not, because it hasn't been around as long as other, uh, you know, schools of psychology or schools of uh, school, schools of psychology. Um, and so why do you think they should? Um, well, I mean, there's, you know, sort of the, the issue of what's true. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if someone is, is interested in identifying what is true about human psychology and behavior, well, it's hard to argue that you there, you know, that you shouldn't, you know, take advantage of the only known cause of complex design, the only known cause of the structure of the human mind, and that's evolution by natural selection. Um, yes, I mean, you're right. It's very difficult, you know, for many who haven't been trained in this field, you know, to sort of think about how they're going to now do this or apply it, but people have done it. Um, I mean, Richard Nisbet is one good example, who was a social psychologist, you know, well before, uh, you know, evolutionary psychology came along, and much later in his career, you know, I think appreciated that, appreciated the value, the utility, as mm-hmm. you said, of an evolutionary perspective. Um, again, I mean, you can still do psychology, and you can still do um, good psychology without an explicitly evolutionary perspective. Um, but you are using an evolutionary perspective. You, you just don't realize it, or you're you're relying on an evolutionary perspective, unless you know you're you know sort of again motivated by a creationist sort of perspective. But I don't I don't think people who don't take an evolutionary perspective are motivated motivated by a creationist perspective. I think they you know are generally it's it's not you know an issue of stupidity. It's an issue of ignorance, and people just don't know you know how their work might be, you know, sort of reframed or rethought, Mm -hmm. you know, with an evolutionary perspective. It's not likely to take away anything that they have done. It's likely to provide, you know, sort of new heuristics for identifying new things about whatever it is they're studying. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, that as evolutionary psychology and evolutionary, applying an evolutionary perspective to, you know, across disciplines, as that becomes more and more common, I think that you know, people that haven't used it will see that, you know, rather than think of it as a competing idea or competing set of guidelines, or now I got to do this. Mm -hmm. um, It's adding to this body of psychological research, right? Sure. And I think in that regard, we're all on the same page, right? We're in pursuit of the truth, right? And so the more information or the more scientific guidance that we have, then you would think that we're getting a little bit closer. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and I'm not, you know, I think, I think it is, you know, just thinking about, um, the fact that it, it does require, you know, learning a little bit more about life and it does require, I mean, being an evolutionary psychologist or practicing evolutionary psychology does mean that you can't stay, you know, painted into a small corner concerned only with, the current functioning of the mind. I mean, it means that you should be familiar with, you know, basic principles in biology, and you should be familiar with, you know, anthropology and some of the, you know, anthropological history and some of the the work that's done in non-Western cultures. I think it does require that you you learn a little more. Um, but I think that's it's not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, for myself, I mean, I think that that is one of the 
things that attracted me most to um, you know, learning more about evolutionary psychology is that it, it is sort of like an interdisciplinary approach to thinking about a lot of human behavior <clears throat> because it does require, we know that we are not just born this way, right? That it does require an evolved psychology where we uh, inputs are involved and we have these psychological mechanisms that, you know, that sort of guide us. But, um, but that means that environment, culture, social influences, the environment, um, biology, it all plays a role in it, right? So it's not kind of, um, you know, pigeonholing us into, well, it's, you know, SES that's dictating everything. It's, you know, low income or, you know, right. you're, and so um, while it might involve learning a little bit more, I think it provides a clearer answer, I mean, you know, for a lot of the things that we have been studying for years. Yes. I mean, I, well, I would agree. <laughs> I do agree. Can't argue with that. Yeah. You shouldn't anyway. But, yeah. um, okay. So, so I mentioned earlier, you know, the sort of scientific approach, right? And when we talk about um, evolutionary psychology and applying, uh, using evolutionary perspective to think about science and, you know, generating hypotheses, um, how, what do you have to say about applying the scientific method in general? You know, how does that fit into uh, thinking about an evolutionary perspective? Well, so in general, I would say that, I mean, evolutionary psychology is normal paradigm science. I mean, evolutionary psychology proceeds by, um, typically by the generation of hypotheses mm -hmm. um, that can be tested and importantly could be falsified if they're wrong. Um, and that's key, that, right? That, that is key. Right. For scientific pursuits anyway, the hypotheses that they have to be falsifiable in order for it to be a good hypothesis. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think generally those are the, the hypotheses that move us forward right. uh, more quickly than, than other sorts of hypotheses. Um, so, I mean, the scientific method is important in evolutionary psychology just as surely as it is in any other area of psychology or any other area of science. Um, and I think this, I mean, this is the sort of, you know, this is the guide to identifying what, what is true. That is what is, um, what is based on evidence, um, as opposed to what isn't. So you also mentioned earlier, you know, that evolutionary principles are really, I mean, the only thing that we can go to, right. In order to explain human behavior, as opposed to creationist yeah. ideas. Mm -hmm. So um, that sentence or phrase that you said is based on research and ideas based on scientific method, right? So research that, you know, just research uh, projects and research, um, you know, papers that just keep coming out, right? So it's a sort of this building evidence of, um, of, um, whatever it is that you're looking at. So, um, so when we talk about the scientific method then and evolutionary psychology there, the rules don't change because it's evolutionary psychology, right? That's right. That's right. The rules don't change simply because it's evolutionary psychology, but at the same time, I mean, evolutionary psychologists don't typically test the theory of evolution by natural selection any more than evolutionary biologists don't typically test the theory of evolution by natural selection, but that's because the theory of evolution by natural selection has been, I mean, it's a theory in the sense of not a hunch or a guess, 
but it's a theory in the sense of it being, you know, a series of principles that are based on, you know, a, a mountain of evidence across multiple disciplines over, you know, 150 years. Um, so we don't, I mean, it would be, I don't know any evolutionary psychologists who regularly test the theory of evolution by natural selection. The presumption now is it's true. I mean, that it is as true as, you know, the fact of gravity. We, we, we still do call it the theory of gravity, but of course gravity is our best bet for what's actually describing why we remain, you know, on the ground. Right. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about sometimes you'll hear people saying, well, you don't know what our evolutionary past was. So how can you apply an evolutionary perspective to humans? Um, you know, but we do know quite a bit about our evolutionary past. Um, and we do know more importantly that evolution by natural selection is the cause of our brains. It, it did produce our brains, our bodies, and therefore it produced our psychology. So, I mean, th there truly is no known alternative to how we got to where we are and why we think and feel and behave the way we do. Um, I mean, there are alternatives, but they're not scientific alternatives that are based on mountains of evidence. So, you know, evolutionary psychology is, uh, to be honest with you, I think of it as a branch of, of biology. I think of if biology is the study of life, well, then evolutionary psychology is the study of the life of the mind. It's the study of the structure of the mind. Um, and that mind might be, in the skull of a dog, or it might be in the skull of a rat, or it might be in the skull of a human. So I think when people say evolutionary psychology, um, they often th think that you're saying human evolutionary psychology, but I thought I would just note that anything with a brain has a psychology. And so, you know, there is, you know, or could be, you know, a rat evolutionary psychology, a chimpanzee evolutionary psychology, just as there is a human evolutionary psychology. <clears throat> and so the, well, that's kind of like comparative psychologists yeah. where we talk about non-humans and, or humans as part of that comparative, sure. comparative package there. Okay. So I think I want to turn things a little bit, make it a little bit lighter. So, sure. um, so just thinking back over your professional life as an evolutionary psychologist, what would you say was the number one best funnest, I don't know, hypothesis that you've come up with or decided to pursue? So that's a good question. Um, I know there are so many. <laughs> well, you could probably guess. I won't make you guess, but... Yeah, don't make me guess. So, I mean, I've always been, as long as I've uh, you know, known of the work on sperm competition um, and the work on sperm competition in humans in particular... Um, from an undergraduate course I took with Randy Thornhill at the University of New Mexico. Um, to make a long story short, uh, Baker and Bellis, Robin Baker and Mark Bellis, tested the application of sperm competition theory to humans. And basically, um, this is work that you know has a 30 or 40 year history in non-humans. And what they found in humans is that the longer the time, excuse me, the, the greater the proportion of time that a couple spent apart since they last had sex, well, then when they ne next had sex, men were producing ejaculates that had many more sperm, um, as if they were sort of making up for, you know, the time that they couldn't account for where their partner was. But the thing is, what Baker and Bellis did is they basically skipped the level of psychology. They went from 
percentage of time apart to collecting ejaculates. And I remember thinking, even at the time, I wonder if, well, I remember thinking at the time, why did they do that? Why did they skip, you know, what's going on inside the minds of men? And I remember thinking at the time that I bet if you ask men, you know, how they perceive their partner, that they would think their partners were super attractive. They really wanted to have sex with their partner. Um, they thought, you know, she was especially, you know, beautiful. Um, but there was no such work. And so one of the first um, research projects I did, or our lab did, um, when I started at Florida Atlantic University, was collecting data on, it's very, it's not super complicated. I mean, it's pretty simple. It's basically asking men um, how they felt about their partners, um, given a greater percentage of time spent apart or a lesser percentage of time spent apart. Time apart being time that men could not account for their partner's whereabouts. And so we tested this, uh, you know, from data collected from several hundred men and women and found uh, that, yes, I mean, with a greater percentage of time spent apart, men were reporting that their partners were more physically attractive, more sexually attractive. They reported they, uh, they were more eager to have sex with them. And importantly, this is controlling for time since last sex. So it's not that, you know, men are just, I would just, you know, shorten it to men are just backed up. Uh, no, I mean, it's specifically the percentage of time that the couple has spent apart. That is time for which he can't account for where she's been or what she's done. In other words, time during which she may have collected sperm from rival males. Um, and so, but what we found is that even controlling for time since last sex, men did in fact report that their partners are more physically attractive and more sexually attractive. And I appreciate that that's not, you know, it, it's not a, you know, a complicated or monumental sort of extension of the research, but it's an application of evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. It's basically asking what is going on in the minds of men, you know, between the percentage of time apart and the production of an ejaculate. Well, yeah, and it, I mean, if you didn't find those findings, then it would, I think it would be, like, not consistent with evolutionary thinking anyhow, right? Yeah, I mean, if we didn't find that, then, you know, we'd have to, I mean, I wouldn't just throw up my hands. I'd say right. well, maybe we're asking it, you know, in a way that's not, you know, getting at the key issues. But at any rate, so that was probably remains, you know, one of the contributions that our lab has made that I'm, you know, most excited about. I think it's very, it's, it was very important to fill in, you know, that information, at least initially. And we've sort of conducted lots of work since then, sort of continuing to fill in, you know, uh, or continuing to identify and specify the, the mechanisms of the mind that evolved as a consequence of recurrent risk of sperm competition. And it's also generated so many other hypotheses for graduate students and undergraduate students as well. It has. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, probably more work has been published by people that aren't me and you and people who are our students, our graduate students and, and undergraduates and colleagues. And that's also, you know, gratifying to know that, you know, something we did, you know, 20 or 25 years ago, whenever it was, you know, continues to have some impact on on the field. Right. Very good. Okay. So uh, another question. So as an evolutionary psychologist, uh, you know, and for people that don't understand, you know, what you do, what I do too, that evolutionary perspectives, um, and, you know, studying psychology that do you walk out of the building and forget 
evolutionary principles and you know thinking, or is it something that you are constantly thinking about or constantly referencing as you see behavior around you? I mean, it. Yeah, I mean, it is something that I might not be thinking about it every moment, but it's right there, um, and it takes very little, you know, for me to begin thinking about, you know, adaptive problems and selection pressures and the current design of the mind. And, you know, um, so it, yeah, I mean, it, it would be very difficult, uh, to not think that way. And in fact, um, I mean, that, that has been my experience since, you know, I was an undergraduate and had a professor that assigned, you know, a portion of Darwin of origin of species. Mm -hmm. I mean, once I learned about this, and it became, you know, you know, I can't imagine not thinking with evolution by natural selection in mind and not thinking about adaptive problems. But again, it's, I don't, you know, I'm not thinking about it all the time, right. but it doesn't take much to get there. Well, Todd, thank you so much for explaining what evolutionary psychology is. It's been great having you. And I hope that the listeners have learned something and, um, you know, consider you thinking a little bit more about this. Well, I'm happy to do it. Uh, it's been a pleasure and, um, best of luck with Darwinian diva. And with that, I am Darwinian diva. <laughs> <laughs>